When I think of wild ideas, Mount Everest is one of the ultimate ideas I think of in the adventure world. Standing at 29,029 vertical feet, it looks majestic. Every year, hundreds of people attempt to climb it, but it's challenging and incredibly risky. It's located between Nepal and China, and just getting there can be hard. Then, once you are there, there's altitude sickness, wild weather, avalanche risks, and it's expensive. There's also people who die there every year. So with all this, I've always wondered why people still climb this mountain, what drives them, and how they did it. This year, the weather window for summiting was small, a dozen people died while climbing, but over 880 summited in total, making it one of the busiest years ever. One of those climbers, who actually went from a way less busy side, and we'll get into that on the show, was today's guest, Caroline Gleick. She's a repeat guest and an incredible adventurer and activist who shares about why she climbed, even with an injury, and so much more. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Caroline Gleick has an adventurous, tenacious spirit, and she's a world-class athlete and activist, which I think is a great combo. She's been on the show before, and we talked about her activism and another goal she had ticked off, which was completing all 90 lines of the shooting gallery in the Wasatch Mountain Range. As a professional ski mountaineer and adventurer, Caroline spends a lot of time climbing peaks and also skiing down them. She's had a deep love of the mountains since she was a kid, and her goal has always been to get people outside and to protect the places we all love to play. I'm so excited to talk to you about everything going on in your life. Before we get into Everest and your climb and all the wonderful things you're doing, for those people who didn't listen to our first interview, I thought we could talk about your first love. That is your love for the mountains and when you started skiing and maybe you have a story as a kid that kind of set the path for why you chose to climb mountains and be so involved in, in kind of winter mountain climbing. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to my upbringing in Minnesota because I didn't really have the mountains when I was growing up. And then I would take a trip to Utah or out west twice or three times a year with my family. We would go skiing in the winter and then we'd do these epic backpacking trips in the summer from when I was 10 to 15. And we visited some of the most iconic alpine places in the west, like the Sawtooths and the San Juans and the Wind River Range. And I have three brothers in my immediate family, and then I have three older half-siblings. So I was always trying to keep up with my brothers and trying to outperform them. And it was always a friendly competition. But I really just fell in love with being outside and, and especially with those huge iconic alpine areas of the West. And I just always wanted to see how the world looked from the top of the peaks. So when you did get out West completely, how did you start getting introduced to mountain climbing and competitive skiing and and then setting records? Well, I didn't actually grow up skiing competitively and I've had a very I've done only a few competitions in my ski career, but when I was 15, I moved to Utah with my family. So that was in between my sophomore and junior years of high school, and it was shortly after my half brother was killed in an avalanche. And so with that loss of the family in our family, it was hard for my parents to be really supportive of my big mountain dreams. Um, so I kind of had to learn how to do it on my own as an adult. I mean, as I got more progressed in my career, they became more and more supportive. 
but it was hard for them to encourage me to go backcountry skiing because it had caused this huge loss and sadness in our family. So let's see. So I graduated from high school and then I was like, I'm going to become a professional skier. I got a job at REI as a cashier and I started saving you up. Did? Yeah, that was my first job in the outdoor industry when I was 18. Wait, which REI store? The Salt Lake REI. Yeah. And then after that, I moved into the action sports sales department. So I was an action sports specialist. So I got to sell skis and bikes and kayaks and roof racks and saved up to buy my own avalanche equipment and backcountry ski equipment. So once I bought that, I started saving up, taking AVI courses and just really building this slow progression. How much older was your half brother than you? So he was 37 and I was 15 when he died. So he is quite a bit older. And what was his name? Martin. Martin. Yeah. Wow. Losing a sibling's got to be really challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard for sure. It was really hard. And I was the oldest child at home at the time. And one of the biggest challenges was just seeing the effect on my parents and seeing their pain. It's something that I think about all the time now. It was actually really hard to tell my parents I was going to Everest and to the Himalayas because I just felt so guilty for causing them so much worry. I want to ask you about that. Like, how did you, how did you tell them? I mean, you've always been kind of a go-getter, it sounds like. So I imagine your parents weren't that surprised. Yeah. But how, how did you tell them, Hey, I'm mom, I'm going to go climb Everest. Well, I was so scared to tell them about my first Himalayan trip when we went to climb and ski Choyu, which is the sixth highest peak in the world, which we did in September of 2018. And I was like so scared to tell my mom and dad. I was like staying up at night and I felt this huge burden of guilt. And, you know, I think even when you're growing up, you still want to make your parents proud. And I was so worried that they weren't going to be proud of my choices or supportive. And it was really emotional for me to tell them. But once I told my mom, and then also I think it helped that we had more logistics set up and we went with a guided group and with a guided company and we were deciding to climb with oxygen. We took some steps to make it a little bit more, to make it a little less risky. So I think that that helped them accept the decision. And ultimately, I, I think that you just have to accept with whatever you do in life that death is an inevitable possibility, whether you're driving your car or whether you're living a super sedentary lifestyle, that has risks as well. So I think whatever we do, we just have to accept that death is inevitable. And I think that, you know, my parents have come to accept my choices and and to be proud of me for them. Yeah, it sounds like your parents are, are pretty supportive and awesome as well. But I don't know, that wouldn't be easy. Why did you want to climb mountains? I mean, especially after having your half-brother pass away. That's so hard. I mean, what what drew you to them? Well, I mean, he taught me so much about leave no trace ethics. And when we'd go on these backpacking trips, he would bring along a rope and set up a top rope for me so I could climb on real alpine granite. And those were my favorite childhood memories. Even if I wasn't having fun while they were happening, I was probably complaining and suffering, but it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. And it's those moments where you're having so much difficulty and overcoming all these personal challenges. I find those to be the most memorable trips where things don't go right and where you have to dig deep. And I just, he introduced me to the love of nature and to the love of being in wild places. And 
I think it was like he's lit a spark for me and it was impossible to put that spark out. I mean, it's just one of those things that's contagious. And once you're turned on to it, it's hard to imagine life without that. So I really felt like it was a way to honor and celebrate his memory and his legacy mm. and all the lessons that he taught me. And there was no denying that that was what I was meant to do. Like when I'm waking up really early to climb a mountain, I just have this feeling, this sense that this is what I'm meant to do. So do you have a fond memory of climbing as a kid that really impacted you? I mean, you said earlier that you have fun when it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> which which is a pretty good statement to say. Well, it's not that I have fun in the moment. Like I'm probably complaining a ton, but it's memorable <laughs> is the difference. It's yes. like something that you want to go back to. And so, I mean, I'm trying to think in particular. I remember when we went into the Wind River Range, I was like 10 and 11 years old. We went in two summers in a row. And we would take horses in because it's a long ways in to get to the nice camping spots. But then we would hike out, and that was when I did my first alpine start. So we'd start in the middle of the night, waking up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and we'd hike all day out. And then I remember I really wanted to carry my weight and carry the rope because we had used it to climb. And I was, like, really stubborn and headstrong and insisted on carrying the rope for quite a few miles. And then eventually the parents decided to take it away from me because it was pretty heavy, and I was getting— be down. But um, I just remember that, like, just being really fiercely determined. And, and I just remember trying to keep going and putting one foot in front of the other for this long hike out of the Wind River Range. Do you have any other fun memories as a kid that you think really set the path of your life? Well, my dad, I think that we talked about this in the follow through the REI documentary that came out in 2017. But when we'd go on ski vacations, my dad would always have this competition for who is the best skier and he would award them the animal status. So we'd always be competing to be the fiercest, most aggressive skier and to get the animal status. And it was just a really fun thing. And it really taught me how to be aggressive and how to be powerful and it just taught me all these other things that I really use in everyday life now. And so I think sports and skiing are a great metaphor for ways we can help support young people and especially young women to keep finding their voices and to be, you know, a different version of what we think femininity is. Mm, love that. Break down animal status to me because one, I love that your dad didn't give you guys a trophy or say you'd get an ice cream for the best skier. He just, it was status. It was status. Yeah, it was who's the animal. So, I mean, it was just like committing to the fall line and skiing with aggression and confidence. And yeah, I mean, it was just who and also not complaining and not whining and just, you know, <laughs> having a good day and having a good attitude, too. That sounds like a really good parental tactic for those of you parents listening. Have your kids compete for best animal on the slopes all day, which means no complaining. And you don't award them with a cookie. They get status, which is priceless. Your parents are climbers as well. No, my parents are not climbers. My parents are doctors. My mom is a dermatologist and my dad is an immunologist and they are very recreational in their hiking and skiing. That's like no joke to go in on horses and then carry ropes. I mean, that's not like the average experience for the average American. It was really special and it took a lot of planning really from my, my dad, my half brother, like a lot of adults worked together to make it happen for us. It was amazing. What a good experience as a young woman growing up. And that must have instilled so much confidence in you. Yeah, I mean, and going on ski trips too, it was just, I think because my parents did work so much that it was a way 
where I really felt close to my family. And I think in our modern day society, it's hard to have that kind of intimacy and to have that sense of belonging with people. And when you go on these trips, you're so dependent on one another and it creates this intense bond. And even if you're not always getting along, it's still you're tied to each other and you're connected in a way you can't really access in other areas of life. I also imagine just the fact that you're able to climb a mountain or get from point A to B, carrying your own weight, carrying your own pack at a really young age. I mean, 10 to 15 is a pretty impressionable age for a young woman. We're going through a lot of changes. That's puberty pretty much. I know what I was like between 10 to 15. I wasn't always the most fun to be around, but I found surfing then. And that really impacted my life because I got so much courage being able to say I rode a wave that it filtered into other aspects of my life as well. Did it for you, did you find that with mountain climbing? Yeah, I completely agree. I struggled so much as a young woman, as a preteen, and then through my teenage years. And so many things about body image and societal norms. And I felt like I really lost my voice during those years of my life. And it took me a long time to find it back. And so the mountains were something where a place where I felt like I could be, you know, just the best version of myself. I could just be who I was. In 2018, I read a statistic about how many mountains you would climb. I don't have it in front of me. Can you let us all know how many mountains you'd climb? I mean, when we last interviewed, you had just completed the shooting gallery, which is a series of lines in the Wasatch Range. So last year I climbed 77 peaks. 77 peaks. No joke. (laughs) Some of them were repeats. Some of them aren't like super hard, but some of them are much more difficult than others. I just love how nonchalant you are about that. I mean, at least the audience knows like who I'm talking to right now. Like Carolyn Gleick is this little gorgeous young woman, but you pack a lot of power in your, in your physique. It's amazing. Well, thank you. I still have a chip on my shoulder about my size. (laughs) Why? When I met you, I was like, I mean, you're like my size, but you're just, you kick butt. And, you know, I think that's the cool thing is when you think of a mountain climber, sometimes we think of like these big burly men. And we talked about that last time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that it's become, it's, it's cool to see that the outdoor industry and just the world in general is becoming more accepting of seeing people who challenge our preconceived notions. They've, I think it's, it's getting to be a better place for people who don't fit the norm. When I started this podcast, I always thought of climbing Mount Everest as the ultimate wild idea. I still think it's one of the most extreme things you can do. Caroline's the first guest I've interviewed who's actually done it. So I wanted to know why and how. What happens in that moment that an idea like this goes from, yeah, it'd be really cool to let's do this. Talk to me about why you wanted to climb Everest and and then let's talk about what it was like. Yeah, well, I guess like as I started to get more and more into ski mountaineering and alpinism, I actually didn't always have the dream of climbing Everest because I heard all these different stories about what the experience is and what it's not. And I had my own preconceived notions that, I mean, there's the cost and there's the crowds and there's just so much baggage that comes with Everest. And so 
I had always had a dream of going to the Himalayas to ski mountaineer, but Everest wasn't always my dream until I saw it with my own eyes. And so at the end of August 2018, we were driving to the base camp on Choyu across the Tibetan plateau. And Choyu is an, it's 26,907 feet, and it's good training for Everest. And it's also a great ski peak in the Himalayas because you can ski most of the way down. So we decided to go do that last year and to see how we felt on an expedition and to see how we handled those altitudes. And I say we, it was my fiance, Rob, and I going to do that. Um, It can be hard to find partners to do this stuff. So when we're on the drive there, we're driving through these dusty hills through the Tibetan desert and plateau. And then this snow-covered peak starts to come into view behind these brown hills. And I see it and I was like, I want to ski that. And it turns out it was Everest. And it was, it's so beautiful from the Tibet side and the ridge, the Northeast Ridge is the route that we climbed. And it's just a fantastic knife edge ridge in an amazing position. And the mountain really spoke to me in a powerful way. So, I mean, as I've gone through my career with the shooting gallery, yeah, I had like a list of lines I wanted to ski, but I also try to be intuitively listening to the mountains and making goals that speak to me and not having too much like a set a set list of peaks that I want to summit. Instead, I want to make sure that I'm continually inspired. Yeah, you must be really connected to the mountains. When you say when you say the mountains spoke to me, for someone who's not a mountain person, can you kind of explain what that looks like? I mean, it's probably like if you're a surfer, you might see a picture of a wave And you're like, oh, I really have to ride that wave. Or I guess it's just like that gut feeling you have that something is calling to you and it's inviting you and that you're meant to be there. I don't know. It's hard to describe, but I think a lot of it comes for me from seeing things and seeing photos and and imagining myself in those positions. And yeah, I want to be sure like Everest is a huge undertaking. It's a huge financial undertaking and it's really risky. And so it's not something I wanted to do just to say I did it. I wanted to make sure that I was genuinely inspired by the climbing and the mountain and everything about it that goes with it. Because if you're not 100% committed and wanting to be there, it's just not a place to, it's not something to take lightly. It sounds similar to big wave surfing, which I have no desire to do, but I have so much respect for people who surf giant waves. And it's just so cool to watch, to have watched you climb Everest and see your journey. I've through your Instagram stories learned a lot about what climbing Everest is like. And I had no idea there was so much waiting involved before we get into like the logistics. Could you tell us a little bit about what you did to prepare and some of the, I mean, you had some serious obstacles, including your knee that you faced. Well, part of the big preparation was, I mean, like when people are like, how did you train for Everest? I'm like, well, it's kind of hard to, to describe like the last 10 years of my life and building my progression from climbing like 4,000 meter peaks and then five and 6,000 meter peaks. And then putting together, like in 2015, I put together an expedition to go climb and ski in the Cordillera Blanca of Peru. And we skied three 18 and 19,000 foot peaks and just learning all these different things through all these different steps of my career. It wasn't just something I trained for in one year. So one of the biggest stepping stones that helped me a lot was going to Climb and Ski Choa Yu, which is the sixth highest peak. I referenced it a couple minutes ago and 
just um, seeing how my body reacted at that altitude and sort of learning the differences between just like normal pain and then what is when you're too sick and you need to go down. It's really a fine line with altitude sickness. And yeah, so going to climb in Skichoyu, that was a huge, hugely important step. And so we did that and summited in September. And then I proposed to my fiance on the summit, which was really special. I cannot wait to talk to you about that. I'm going to save that for a little later. Okay, cool. I'm jumping the gun. It's so <laughs> badass. And um, oh, I loved that moment. So I'm still just not a mountain girl. And I'm sorry, you got to dumb this down for me and probably some of the listeners here, also surfers and have not climbed mountains, but altitude sickness. You know, I lived in Breckenridge. That was, that's my mountain experience. That was it. What is it like to, you know, how do you know you're getting altitude sickness versus like you're just tired? Yeah. And it's a fine line and it's really like monitoring your symptoms and being super self-aware. It's like having some wilderness medicine training. And then we take our blood oxygen saturation and we take all these different measurements to see how well we're acclimatizing. And then, um, you know, you just have to take into consideration all the symptoms. And we had an amazing high altitude doctor who is available by sat phone and text who would help us also with some of these decisions. So it's really hard to describe just how incredibly exhausted you feel at these at 17,000 feet, 21,000 feet. Like we slept all the way up to 27,000 feet and at that altitude, it's just really hard to do anything. It's even hard to talk. Like your voice, you just run out of air to speak to one another. So communication, just basic things like even getting up to go to the bathroom, that takes like all your energy. You feel like you need to just rest for an hour after you take a pee. <laughs> It's just all of your cells, everything is just fighting so hard to survive. So, I mean, you'd been really training indirectly for 10 years of your life, climbing mountains, doing the shooting gallery, but then, you know, Choyu, it sounds like really helped prepare you. Yeah. But you had a big obstacle right before you climbed Everest with your ACL. So in February, we had to make the final deposit for our trip and we had to make our first deposit in January and it was like just so stressful financially because I didn't have all the money together. So we got an extension for the payment and I was going, working really hard with sponsors and with other people to try to fundraise to help me get to Everest. And then the day came where we had to transfer, wire transfer the final deposit. And so we did that. And the very next, it was the third day of a video shoot and it was like sunset. It was getting dark. We had just filmed some interviews. So I had been standing around for a while and I dropped in to make this turn, a turn that I've made a lot of times before. And I hit some bad snow and I caught an edge and then I started tumbling, somersaulting down this steep pitch. And then I felt a pop in my knee and I just started swearing because I mean, just the amount instantly, my mind just went to the worst case scenario that I wouldn't be able to climb Everest. I wouldn't be able to get my money back and I'd have to pay my sponsors back and I'd go bankrupt. Like it wasn't a comfortable position financially for me to be able to go. Like I'm not independently wealthy. So it was a real stretch for me to be able to put that money down and and I didn't get trip insurance at the time I made the deposits because it's another five to 10 grand to get trip insurance for a trip wow. like Everest. So I just couldn't swing it. So anyway, so then I was just that first night after that happened, I went to the ER just to get an x-ray and they didn't really know exactly, but we, I, I knew that it was probably my ACL. And I was just devastated because I've heard that's a season ending injury 
And I, it's always been my worst nightmare to have a knee injury. It was my first, it's, this was my first knee injury. And it was like a, my worst nightmare come true. So the first night I was devastated and I've always sort of struggled with depression and with mental health and anxiety. And I have to say that there was part of me that thought about like suicide at that moment because it was so stressful. Like I'm tearing up as I'm talking to you because just mm. reliving that, it was like so traumatic. But then the next day, my fiance, Rob really, really rallied. He's from Park City. And so there's an excellent community of sports medical doctors and orthopedic surgeons here. So he rallied all his connections and got me set up to see a sports med doc and to get an MRI the next day. And to have that happen wow. right away really helped me emotionally and mentally because I was like, I need answers. Like, I need to figure this out, what I'm doing here. So the next day we saw a doctor and he said, you know, it might be possible in seven, in six or seven weeks to go to Everest with a hinge brace. And the minute he said that, I went from being like depressed wow. and semi-suicidal to like all of a sudden my demeanor, everything changed. And I was like, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to rehab my knee and I'm going to go climb Everest and I'm going to have surgery when I get home. And luckily it was a straight ACL. The MRI that afternoon confirmed that. And I got in to see an orthopedic surgeon the next day, and he said that it was totally possible for me to rehab and to go still. And then we talked to our expedition leader and to our high-altitude doctor, and they were both supportive of the idea. So all of a sudden I went from being, it was just instant, like, I was like, I'm going to get the swelling down in my knee. I'm going to learn how to use my knee again without an ACL. I'm going to get my balance and proprioception back and I'm going to work up to longer and longer hikes and do what I can so I can be successful on Everest. Caroline, thank you for sharing that story with me. One, because I just had a moment recently where I had like an injury. It was just a stingray, but it went through my toe. It really sidelined me. Dumb. Ouch. But I went so dark because I thought I wasn't going to be able to run and surf and just my mental health is... um, I'm sure I'm also on the spectrum with like anxiety and depression and I've, I've dealt with it a lot my whole life. And for me, my medicine has always been through sports. Mm-hmm. When I don't have that or I can't do my goal or I can't do what's ahead of me, I, I, I spin. But there's something really powerful when at least you know what it is and you have a mm-hmm. plan to get out of there and to heal. Like having a plan for healing is so important. And I'm just, I'm curious, you know, having an injury like that as an athlete, you've probably had a lot of injuries. What other tactics besides just knowing what to do and then having a plan on how to heal, like what's helped you get through those moments? Because I know people listening have been through this. Yeah. I mean, I think having a sense of community or having some sort of support network was really important. And With this injury, it was really nice to have a team of doctors who could give me information. And then once I started writing about it publicly, after the first two weeks, I was like sort of ready to talk about it on Instagram. I wasn't ready right away because I was really worried about my livelihood. Like I was like, sponsors are going to drop me and I'm going to get fired from my teams because there's not a lot of protections for athletes with injuries. Mm -hmm. Like your contracts, I always feel like a little bit precarious with my position as a sponsored athlete. And so after the first two, I called my sponsors and told them all. And luckily I have, I work with great companies and they were all like, okay, we're, we're with you. Like, 
And then when I started talking about it on Instagram and I asked people to share their positive knee stories with me, just hearing from everyone else on the internet who had gone through the same thing and who had come out on the other side and just hearing from everybody and opening myself up to that, that really helped me feel better just to know I wasn't alone. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in knowing you're not alone. You know, I appreciate you sharing this and I think this is going to help a lot of people like reaching out to your community, which you did is really big and just knowing you're not alone. Like that's huge. So you continued to train forever as doing the best you can. And then you actually got to climb it. So you went a different route. I'm sure every year is a controversial year on Everest right now, but this year was especially controversial because there was some images that went around the internet of these lines of people waiting to summit, but you didn't even go that way. No. So we climbed on a different day from a different side of the mountain. And so it was really stressful to be up there with this short weather window. And I mean, an, an experience like Everest, it attracts a lot of people because it is a phenomenal experience. And yes, there are definitely problems with Everest. There's problems with waste disposal and there's problems with crowding. However, I still think that it's just such a phenomenal experience that it attracts a lot of people. So, but it was really stressful this year because when you're waiting for weather on Everest, you're literally waiting for the actual jet stream to move off the summit. And this year, the jet stream was wobbly. So it wasn't clearly moving off the summit and allowing for wind speeds that would allow a person to stand up there. So when we finally got the weather, it was a little bit later in the season than, than usual. And then there's like this two-day weather window when everyone's acclimatized and ready and everyone went on the same days. And so we decided to go the day after, but it was a less certain weather day. So it was really stressful to be climbing on our summit day, knowing that the weather and the wind speeds could increase to the point that we would literally get knocked off. It was it was really stressful this year. And yeah, again, there's a lot of problems, but I think it's like beyond this. It's a, it's a complicated issue on Everest, just like a lot of places that people love, like people are going into the wilderness in in bigger and bigger numbers. And, and we need to be more conscious of how to mitigate our impact on these wild places. Okay. So from the day you got to Everest, and can, can you tell me about like when you arrived at Everest and when you summited, what was that time mm -hmm. frame like? It was a long time. I, I remember. So we left on April 20th and then we summited on May 24th. So I think we arrived at base camp on, I think it took us like a full week to get there, maybe the 25th or 27th of April. Um, and then we summited almost a full month after that. And this is considered a rapid ascent. Most teams take 60 to 70 days to acclimatize. And so we pre-acclimatized at home using a hypoxico altitude training tent. <laughs> so badass. Tell us what that is. So it's this tent that goes over your bed and then it, it um, simulates higher and higher altitudes. So our home in Park City is about 6,600 feet. And then we'd start sleeping at incrementally higher altitudes over the course of two and a half months. And the manufacturer only recommends that you go to about 9,000 feet. And by the end, we were sleeping at 17,000 feet, which was, it was painful and hard. It's hard to sleep at 17,000 feet, even in the comfort of your own home. So that kind of training, it's not, it's, it's really nice to be able to spend less time on the mountain, but, and then you're much less likely to get sick in the Himalayas once you go there, but it wasn't a walk in the park. <laughs> Let's just say that. I mean, just even eating on Everest, is that, was that a big part of it as well? This trip, the first two weeks, I had a really hard time with my appetite. I caught a bug on the, 
the plane ride over. It took us 42 hours and five flights to get there. And then we had a three-day drive. And somewhere along that journey, I caught some little bug. And it was like a flu. And I felt horrible. And I couldn't eat anything the first two weeks, basically. I could eat very little. I just had no appetite. And so... I usually am a good eater on trips and at altitude, but this trip I really struggled and I just had no, all I wanted was like cup of noodle soup, just something really bland and familiar. So I ate a lot of ramen and then after the first two weeks, I started to feel better and then I was able to eat more of a balanced diet. But then when you're going up higher on the mountain for the days that you spend at above advanced base camp... So base camp, you can drive to. Then advanced base camp is at 21,000 feet and yaks can carry stuff up. So you have more fresh food and you have a nice kitchen cook tent where people cook for you. It's amazing. And then above that at camps one, camp two, and camp three, you're cooking your own meals, like mostly dehydrated backpacking food. And you're eating cliff bars and it's, um, it's hard to carry enough calories. So you're usually pretty calorie deprived. So you just lose a ton of weight on Everest. I lost 10 pounds and Rob lost 20 pounds. Wow, that's a lot for a month. Yeah. When we come back, Caroline talks about the message behind her climb, what it was like at the top, plus her husband Rob Lea's ultimate triathlon and how she proposed to him. That's right, she proposed to him. As more women are getting out there doing badass things in the outdoors, it's important to find gear that's actually made for us. That's why I love that Keen from Portland, Oregon just came out with a new version of its women's Terradora athletic hiking shoes. Every detail is designed for a woman's foot with a more contoured arch, a narrower heel, cushioning in different areas and more support in others. Keen really took design specifically for women in mind when they made this shoe. The new Terradora 2 keeps all things we love about the original Terradora, but with added performance, comfort cushioning underfoot, and more traction. So as women, we can go even further and stay out there longer. I also appreciate Keen's consciously constructed approach to making shoes with more sustainable materials, all the way down to eco anti-odor, which naturally breaks down foot funk without pesticides and water repellency that's PFC free. We can feel great treading lighter on the planet while we're out exploring it. For an all-around hiker that checks all the boxes, check out the woman-specific fit of the Keen Terador 2, available at REI. When Caroline decided to climb Mount Everest, she knew she wanted to make it about something more than reaching the summit. So she and Rob decided to climb for a cause, gender equality. So I think what's really amazing about this climb you did is you didn't just climb for yourself, you climb for a cause, climb for equality. Can you tell us about this and why this cause? Well, I mean, for one thing, we knew with going to Everest that we would get a lot of eyeballs and curiosity on our trip. And so a lot of people were like, just go climb, don't do it for something. But I wanted to use this opportunity where we'd have a lot of people's attention to talk about something else besides just climbing. And so gender equality, it's normally something that's so difficult and uncomfortable to talk about. Like, it's not my favorite topic. However, having worked in the snow sports and the outdoor industry for the past 15 years, I feel like I'm at the point where I can't not talk about it because I really feel like we need more people to be strong advocates for women. And we need people to think about the ways in their everyday lives that they can advocate 
for women and especially to help get women into leadership positions. Because um, when you look at, there's like more and more women getting into sports, but, and into the workplace and everything. But when you, when you look at who's at the top, whether it's Everest summits or fortune 500 CEOs or Hollywood directors, you still see that it's only about 10% women. Yeah. I read this quote you told gear junkie and you said close to 10% of all people who summited Everest are women. Leadership positions across the board, whether it's 8,000 meter peaks or fortune 500 CEOs do not have an equal representation of women. I was blown away by that quote. Yeah. And so it was really, so we created a social media toolkit and we encouraged people and our followers and just everyday people who felt like they wanted to support this to use the hashtag and to learn a little bit more about disrupting implicit bias. And it's just one of those things that when I started to learn about implicit bias, all of a sudden I had this language to describe these things that I felt my whole career, this blink reaction people have when they see me that like, they think I'm not capable or that I'm not strong or that I'm, I'll die or I'm not meant to be in the mountains. So learning about that, it helped give me language to talk about things I had felt and these invisible forces that I felt like had sort of shaped my career. And so I just felt really passionate about that. And then with my partner, Rob, I also wanted to bring men into the conversation because it's really easy for a lot of that hard work of advocating for women to fall on women's shoulders. And I think it really takes bringing men into the conversation as well and people of all genders. So Rob also was like on board with this. And then also he's doing his ultimate world triathlon where he's trying to climb Everest, swim the English Channel and ride his bike across America in a year. He's doing that as a try for equality. And that whole inspiration came from this UN movement called He for She. And it's a hashtag and it's a it's a whole social influence campaign, social awareness campaign, just about the role that men can play in advocating for gender equality. So you're basically marrying a badass. I love him. Like I, <laughs> I fell so in love with Rob while you've been posting about him for his second leg of this ultimate triathlon. So, so Rob climbs Everest with you mm -hmm. and at the top of Everest, he holds a sign that says, I get to marry her which we're going to get into this, this engagement story. It was so, it's so cute. Good. It was so cute. So do you feel you were able to make a difference for equal pay? That's such a daunting, giant task. But, yeah. you know, what do you, what do you think you guys did and, and what more needs to be done? Yeah. So when we were talking about this, this idea for the trip, we talked to our expedition leader and we were like, hey, if you could hire a female guide, that would be so cool. And so our company ended up hiring a female guide to help get us to the top of Everest. So I got to summit with Carla wow. Perez and Chad Peel was our other guide. What was her name? Carla Perez. And she's the first South American. She's Ecuadorian. She's the first South American woman to summit Everest without supplemental oxygen. And right now she's trying to summit K2 without supplemental oxygen. And to me, having the opportunity to work with a female guide and to have her leadership on our expedition, it really just changed the whole tone of everything. And it made me so excited and so happy. And then our expedition was, our Western part of our expedition was over 50% women. And so that wasn't our, from our campaign, but I just think that a hashtag isn't going to change the world, but it's just a small step. And it's something we could do to hopefully get people to start thinking differently about a fun way that they can advocate for gender equality and to start having these difficult conversations in a lighter hearted way. Well, I also think just seeing you climb gives light to so many other younger people, older people, any female can now say, you know what, it, 
Caroline climbed. Like she sort of looks like me. Maybe I can do it. Well, I'm not the first woman to do this. And I didn't do anything that groundbreaking on the trip. Like there's a lot of women who have done way harder things on Everest from there's this woman, Allison Hargraves, who climbed Everest. She was a mother without any oxygen or outside support, without Sherpa support. She did that in the, I think in the 90s or the early 2000s. And then Melissa Arnott-Reed was the first American woman to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen. So there's other women who have really paved the way and people who've looked like me, but they've also been a huge part of my inspiration. And I just hope that by telling my story and putting myself out there that I can hopefully inspire other women to see themselves at the top, whether it's on Everest or whether it's in a leadership position somewhere else. What was it like at the top with Rob, like at the top of Everest when you're actually there? Is it just a photo moment? I was real stressed out because you want to get the photos and it's like crowded and cold and uncomfortable and there's sheer drop-offs in every direction and you feel real shaky and sort of faint, lightheaded and out of breath very easily and there's a lot of things to trip over and so it's like I was really scared at the top to be honest, like my anxiety was really in full swing And I was really worried about all the miles of descending we had in front of us because like the summit on on the summit day for Everest, it's like less than halfway. You have so much distance to cover to get to like comfort and to get to more of a safe position. So I was really just kind of stressed out on the summit. It wasn't like the joyful moment that you would think because also I knew the weather was maybe coming in. So I was like, I just was worried and anxious and not chill or I was happy, but cautiously optimistic. Let's just say that. (laughs) I appreciate that honesty. And I I imagine that would be terrifying at the top. Just, you just need to kind of get the picture and get down. And um, yeah, I just didn't really feel like relaxed even until we got back to the U S because just traveling through China, there's just so many unknowns. So once we got to LAX, I was like, woohoo, we're back on U S (laughs) soil. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, what was it like when you finally got to whatever your safety was, which was LAX? Oh, I mean, it was just a huge sigh of relief. And I mean, I think I'm still decompressing from it because it's just a lot to process and a lot to take in. Yeah. I imagine you're going to decompress in this whole year. You might need a year off this year. Yeah. I'm still like, I'm trying to find restful moments where I can and to take that time to reflect. But um, it was, there's just a lot of different things I still need to process from it for sure. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I was inspired watching it. I think so many other people were. And it it was just, it was really interesting to learn through, you're really good at social media and sharing with other people through social media, your story, mm-hmm. you know, the hard and the, the fun. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate that. So I want to talk about Rob. Rob, your partner, just seems like such a great advocate. And, and he was involved too, which is so, it was so great. I just watched him embark on that second leg of his ultimate world triathlon, swimming the English channel. And you posted this video of him swimming and all of a sudden he takes a jellyfish to the face. <laughs> yeah. It's he's so he... funny to listen to you commentate. <laughs> he said he got stung by over 50 jellyfish. And I mean, oh. it was kind of sad and kind of funny to watch. It's like a very slow, soft car crash. <laughs> So, um, no, it was just, it was amazing to watch him do that. And I mean, when we first started dating, I had just come out of like, I'd had a lot of breakups and like relationships that hadn't worked out before. So I was like really hesitant to put him too much on my Instagram or make him too much a part of my social media. Cause I'm like, I don't want 
this to be my story or I just don't, I didn't want to like co-brand us too much because I was nervous <laughs> that it wouldn't work out. And over the years, like he just continued to support me and to keep showing up. And I just love that he lets me shine and he's not afraid to let me go first, to lead, to be who I am. And he's very confident in himself and his masculinity that he's not, he doesn't feel threatened by my strong assertiveness or by any of my personality characteristics. So yeah, and he seems pretty strong himself. I mean, he's he's a big dude. And I mean, just the fact that he climbed Everest and went ahead and what, like a month later, swam the English Channel? Yeah. So he's the first person to ever do those two things in a single year. Most people, there's eight, 10 people who've done them both. This It's called Peak to Pond Challenge. And um, he's the first one to do it in a single year. And it's just incredibly difficult because of the weight loss and the muscular atrophy and all these different things from spending 40 days on Everest to be able to turn that around in just a month and to gain the weight back because the English Channel rules don't allow you to wear a wetsuit. And the water is very cold. It's about 55 to 60 degrees. So he had to gain back this layer of brown fat to keep him warm like a baby seal. <laughs> and then he he just crushed it. It was so cool to watch. So he climbs Everest, loses 20 pounds doing it, mm-hmm. puts as much as he can back on, swims. How far is the English Channel and how long did it take him? It's 21 miles as the crow flies, but with the tides and the currents, it was 28 miles of swimming. 28 miles. 28 miles. And it took him 11 hours and 47 minutes, during which he's not allowed to touch the boat. He's not allowed to get on the boat or to wear a wetsuit or... We, when we feed him, we have to like throw him a bottle on and a little bucket on a string and then he feeds out of that and he just treads water. Yeah, I've, I've learned a little bit about long distance swimming because we interviewed uh, Kim Chambers. Oh, cool. Swam a bunch of those. And then um, Diana Nyad. And they're oh, both sweet. I, I mean, the swimming awesome. is, is so, so crazy. But but so he he does this and you're supporting him. So what was it like? He climbed Everest with you and I'm sure having him support with you was amazing. But what was it like to be on the other side and then support him? Okay. So when he first came up with his idea a couple of years ago, I was like still working on the shooting gallery project and I had all my own goals and big mountain dreams. And I was like, I'm the professional athlete. Like I felt really threatened by it at first. And my ego and my, my jealousy and just these ugly sides of me sort of reared their heads Because like I have a lot of insecurity, I guess, is what it comes down to. And so at first I was very insecure and I felt very threatened by his plan and his idea. And to be honest, when he first told me he wanted to climb Everest, I was not supportive. And I told him I'd break up with him if he did that. So I had a big shift over the years of um, wanting to do that myself and to go with him on that. And then being his supporter and stuff, I just it was like a turning point where I realized that you can get as much of a sense of satisfaction from supporting someone else as you can from doing the goal yourself. And so it was a kind of beautiful turning point for me on my own journey and my own, you know, finding like a sense of wholeness and to be less insecure about myself. It was really gratifying and it was really beautiful to be on the boat and to help him achieve that goal. And sometimes that jealousy is a good reminder to get clear on your own goals and to make sure that you're doing things for yourself that you want to do and you're not living someone else's life. So it's a fine line between listening to that and then then also coming from a place of self-love and feeling like instead of that sense of scarcity, a sense of there's enough to go around. And then Rob has one more piece of his triathlon left. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so in September, he's going to ride his bike across America. So he's going to start in Seattle and end in Nantucket. And when we started talking about it, we originally thought, like, I would drive an RV and support him and crew him. But then for a while, I thought maybe I would ride with him. But then when I tore my ACL, my surgeon and my PT think it might be a little excessive for me to ride over 100 miles every day, just so close out of knee surgery that you just don't want to, like, overdo it with your knee graft. So I might ride the first couple days with him, but then he's going to do mostly self-supported. So he'll have some bags on his bike and he'll have a credit card and he'll do a combination of staying with people, staying in motels and camping and just take this route and take the time. And I'm really excited for him. And to be honest, I'm really kind of jealous because it would be so indulgent to take 30 days and ride across America. So I'm a little heartbroken. I can't go with him. And I hope it doesn't derail our fresh marriage. (laughs) But I'm trying to keep myself busy with other things. Like I'm planning to go to Washington, D.C. with Protect Our Winners to do some lobbying about climate change and other legislation. And I have other things going on. So I feel like I'll be able to keep myself engaged on other projects that are meaningful to me. I'm curious how you two met. Oh, yeah, we met on Instagram. And you proposed uh, how long ago? In September of 2018. In September. So tell me about this engagement. So we had been talking, I mean, marriage, I grew up in Minnesota, very traditional Midwest. I grew up Catholic as well. And so there's always this thought I had that like marriage is a huge goal and it's something I'd always wanted. And um, finally we felt like we were ready. So we were like talking about it and I I had always wanted to propose to him. I thought it would be really cool. But one of my friends was like, no, you can't take that moment away from him. So I asked him, would I be taking that moment away from you? And he was like, no, that would be awesome. So I asked his mom for permission. And then <laughs> yeah, she gave me her blessing and his dad too. And then when we were on the trip, it was sort of in my back pocket. And then when we got to the summit, I, I proposed. So you got down on one knee and, and you said, will you marry me? I said, Robert James Lee, will you marry me? <laughs> and he said, yes. Yeah. Right on. Not many women do that. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I'm just really happy to be with a guy who, who wasn't like threatened by that. And I think that having to wait for a guy to ask is like sort of outdated. I think it's like something that two adults should decide on. And I mean, it's nice to have an element of surprise and, and whatnot, but I think if you want to ask, you should, if you're a woman. It doesn't, I think it's outdated to have to wait for something you want. I love that. And did you get him a ring? Like, did you have that all picked out? So I made these rings out of P-cord, just out of like some thin climbing rope, some really small rope. And I just just uh, melted the ends together And I brought those with us and we're not like huge on material, like spending a lot of money on jewelry. Like it's just not something that I would want to do. So when we got home, my grandma, my, my mom gave me my grandmother's engagement ring that she had, that Mm. she had set aside for me. And then for my wedding band, I have my other grandma's wedding band. And so to me, like having those heirloom vintage pieces, it's more ethical and more sustainable. And I just, it's more true to who I am. And then Rob has a silicone ring that he'll probably never wear. <laughs> but that's fine with me. I love that. And I and I think your approach to rings is, is really cool. I also, you know, one, I was like, I'm going to lose the ring mm-hmm. uh, surfing. And so my ring is sea glass. It's just sea oh, glass. Cool. Just that's little so sea awesome. glass. It's less than a hundred bucks. I've already, I've already lost one, but 
So you have so many things going on this year and you're, you have a wedding coming up. Yeah. In less than three weeks, we're getting married, which is crazy. Wow. So, so you're, you're busy. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, you will have been married and you will have this great wedding. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, what are you looking forward to most with your wedding? I mean, for one, we're getting married at the top of Snowbird, at the top of the tram at 11,000 feet on Hidden Peak. And it's a place that's really special to us. So for one, we're just really excited to share the heart of the Wasatch with our friends and family. And then I'm just looking forward to having a big dance party and just to like bringing all these weird groups of people together and having a big celebration. And I just want to have a good time. And I hope my guests also have a great time. I love that you also have weird groups of friends. Like I always am like, what's going to happen when I put all my weird groups of friends into one room together? And it's always epic. And I bet your wedding is going to be so I'm worried. I'm trying not to freak out, but it's, um, I like couldn't sleep at all last night. I was so anxious. There's a lot of last minute details that need to be worked out, but it's just one of those things where you do as much as you can and you do the best you can and then realize that not everything is going to be as you want it. And just to be rolling with what happens. That's great advice. So after your wedding, do you get any time to chill? No, I have a pretty busy schedule for the end of August and September. Um, and then maybe in October, we'll go for a honeymoon. I'm not 100% sure yet. We'll see. So you talked a little bit about self-doubt and anxiety. It's something I, I struggle with still, fear of failure, perfectionism. It's kind of a probably going to be a lifelong battle, but I'm hoping I can nip it in the bud sooner than later. Do you have any tactics that you've used, books you've read, things you do to sort of calm that chatter in your mind to gain that confidence to go after these big goals? Well, I guess like one of the things that really has helped me is to do meditation. And I'm not sponsored by this app or anything that I pay for it, but I used Headspace for a while and I found that to be really helpful. Another thing that's really helped me I done like talking to life coaches and other therapists, but to me, so many of my issues are deeper than what I can access through just talking. They're like in my tissue and my muscles. So another thing that's really helped me is getting massage and regular body work and having someone mm. who can like help me. Like sometimes that kink in your neck, that like muscle knot is like some deep stored trauma or some limiting doubt or self belief that you have that needs to be resolved. And so having a massage therapist, that's been super helpful to make me feel more whole. And then the other thing is just realizing that you don't have to listen to all the thoughts. Like you'll have these little thoughts, this, these things that come up and just learning that you don't have to listen to all the thoughts that you have. Like some thoughts just aren't worth listening to. So learning to let those go. Wow, Caroline, you're such a go-getter and <laughs> you you put yourself at the highest level. Like when you go after something, you go after the best. I mean, you're going to DC to help legislate for climate protection. You're, you climbed Everest, the tallest of mountains. Any advice to people who maybe they have some obstacles in their life or they just want to go after a wild idea? I mean, one of the things I think about with myself is that I waited so many years to feel like I was ready for these things. And sometimes I wish like maybe I had gone for these big dreams sooner and like not waited quite so long to feel like I was so overprepared. I think sometimes, I mean, it's good to be prepared, but on the other hand, I think especially for women, sometimes we wait until we don't think that we're ready until we have like so much experience. And sometimes I think we could go for it sooner. The other thing I would say is that 
it took me a long time to really believe in myself that I was capable and worthy of achieving these big things. Like a lot of with Everest and was just like wrapping my head around fundraising and telling myself I was worth it. Because I think I had this this like inner dialogue that I wasn't capable or worthy of raising that amount of money and being up there. And so I had to really do some self-coaching around that. Um, and so I think just like believing in myself and trying to take on these big ambitious things sooner, it would have been, I mean, I wish I would have done it, like started dreaming bigger sooner. Don't wait to dream big. You don't have to change who you are to be worthy of your goals. We all have our own Mount Everest to climb. Even if you don't want to climb Mount Everest, I'm sure there's a big adventure you want to do. My biggest advice is just start. Any adventure you partake in will be memorable. Thank you to Caroline Gleick for sharing the details of your adventure. I appreciate your why for doing so and your determination. Also, thank you for your work in the world on climate change and for equality and for your desire to continue to evolve, to grow, just to push yourself as a human. Caroline's wedding pictures and some clips are up on Instagram. It looked like it was an amazing party, so check it out. You can follow Caroline at Caroline Gleick. That's C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-G-L-E-I-C-H. And you can follow her husband at Rob Lea as he does the ultimate triathlon. If you like this episode with Caroline, you can also search for our previous episode, number 39, Climbing Mountains, Conquering Fears, and Speaking Up to Protect Where We Play. This podcast is produced by REI with the help from Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis. Tune in week after next as we talk to the founder and some participants of an all-women's off-road adventure series, The Rebel Rally. As always, I appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you're listening to this podcast. I love your funnier reviews and your heartfelt reviews. They mean a lot, and I read them all. Remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Wildest ideas.